Welcome to The Fabric, a podcast from Lobby Capital. In this podcast, we explore the people we back, the people we work with, and those we partner with in hopes of better understanding what leads to successful entrepreneurship. Recognizing there is no single recipe or list of ingredients in successful entrepreneurs, but instead a combination of past experiences, relationships, serendipity, and personal characteristics that shape and influence their achievements. So through our conversations, we will dissect various case studies in hopes of unraveling the fabric of successful entrepreneurs. Eric Carlberg, thanks for joining the podcast. Eric is the co-founder with myself and David Hornick of Lobby Capital. He's one of the nicest, smartest, sort of most optimistic people I've ever met. It's a thrill to sort of get him on this podcast. The funny thing is Eric and I have known each other for quite a while, and there's a lot I know But there's also a lot that I don't know. We've rarely gone back in time and talked about some of the stuff that sort of happened in Eric's life and in career that sort of led him to his illustrious venture capital career and success. So today we're going to sort of explore the fabric of Eric Carlberg. Eric, it's awesome to have you here. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Excellent. 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 So we'll do this in a chronological order. Let's go back in time. You're an Illinois boy. You grew up, was it Flossmore or St. Charles? St. Charles. St. Charles. Born in the city, born in Lying In Hospital. My dad was a grad student uh, at the University of Chicago, born there, moved to St. Charles shortly after that. And was the whole extended family in St. Charles in the Chicago no, area? my parents are from Evanston, and that's where okay. the extended family is from. And brothers, sisters? I have two older sisters. My eldest sister is seven years older than me, and my middle sister is five years older than me. So this is fun. This is a first fun fact that I did not know before, but now it's sort of helping explain. So David Hornick, our co-founder, has said numerous times that I'm the Jewish Eric Carlberg. There you go. And the funny thing is, you know, I'm speculating here, and you can certainly add in, but I'm speculating that there's sort of a Midwest personality that both you and I have from our upbringings. And accent, I'll add. And and our (laughs) accent. All right, so you grew up in St. Charles, and I know, you know, super athletic guy. What was Eric Carlberg as a kid? What did Eric Carlberg do? What was Eric Carlberg like as a child? I mean, I was one of those outside all the time kids played whatever sport was in season, you know, baseball in the spring and in the summer, football or whatever in the fall and and basketball in the winter, which is what I ended up playing the most. But yeah, grew up in the small town. Everybody had a bike, you know, ride to the pool in the summer and don't come home before dinner. (laughs) Right, right. In fact, mom ushered you out of the door so you wouldn't be in her way as she was sort of doing her thing up until dinner. You know, it's funny, growing up in the Midwest, doors were never locked. There was no sort of helicoptering over us as we sort of did our thing after school. In fact, you know, I don't think my mom and dad ever took me to school or picked me up from school. That was my responsibility to get there. I assume it was the same for you. Oh, yeah. Could walk to grade school, walk to middle school, and then bus to high school. But yeah, absolutely. If you couldn't get there on your own or you couldn't get there on a bike, you weren't going. (laughs) Right. The bike was the key thing. And, you know, it's funny. Growing up also, I grew up in the north suburbs of Chicago. St. Charles is straight west. As I was growing up, I was a swimmer. And St. Charles was like the elite swimming town. And they had the best high school and traveling swim team. And did you ever swim? Did you have any friends that were in that swim team? I knew all those guys. I worked out with them in the morning before school. The coach, you know, he kind of 
changed sports. At St. Charles, he turned swimming into a 12-month year sport. And that kind of all started right when I was in junior high and high school. Yeah. And you went to St. Charles High, right? That, I did. That, spinning I did. forward to high school. And, yeah. and played those sports. And as a student, you know, what were the classes you took? What interest you sort of what was Eric like as a student in high school? I mean, I took whatever was offered. I was as interested in sports as I was in anything else, but I was a math and science kid and, you know, took all the honors classes and, you know, it's kind of what everybody else did as well. And were you competitive? Like when you think of yourself in the academic setting, was there an element of competition there that you enjoyed? Was it... Uh... I was a good student, but it wasn't a focus. <laughs> yeah. I was more interested in sports and everything else that was going on. I had a great time in high school. Great time. Four years, but yet probably the most memorable period of my life. Yeah, for me, it's college for sure. I mean, I went to Illinois and that was the perfect place for me. I had a great time there. It's a great school. That's the part where most of my longest lasting friends come from that time in my life. And so let's talk about that. So not an uncommon path. Grow up in the suburbs of Chicago, super bright, good student, good athlete, well-rounded, and end up at Illinois. Did you always think, okay, I'm just, that's my path? Or did you apply to other schools and then decide Illinois was the right one? How did that work? I could either go and play basketball at a small private school, or at least that's what I was thinking, or I could go to Illinois. And my sisters had gone to private schools and my dad knew me pretty well. And he thought I should go to Illinois. He thought I would enjoy the big sports and all that. And from his perspective, it was, you know, one third the cost. So he was interested in that as well. And, you know, he knew I had wanderlust. And so he made a deal with me that if I went to Illinois, I could do whatever I wanted in the summer, as long as I didn't cost him any money. Hmm. And I'll, can tell you what those were, but that really appealed to me. So I went to Illinois kind of based on that trade and it worked because then in the summers I did three kind of crazy experiences and I looked for these experiences. After my freshman year, I pumped gas in Yellowstone National Park. There were at the time eight gas stations and they're run by college kids and you have to write an essay and you go there, but I did that. After my sophomore year, I'd worked in college, so I had some money it was a really strong exchange rate, 10 francs to the dollar, and the pound and the dollar were almost at parity. So I spent a summer kind of hitchhiking around Europe, and I also took a language class for a month in L'Alliance Française in Paris. And then um, after my junior year, I was a flower farm laborer, literally picking weeds and picking flowers in Maui. Wow. And so, I, and again, I, it was a zero-sum cost. I earned enough to get there and come back. But I can survive. do all those things based on that original premise. All right, so there's a lot to unpack here. This is awesome. I'm super, super excited about this. So Yellowstone, you're a Midwestern boy. You're in St. Charles. For those that have never visited St. Charles, it's flatter than a pancake. You're at Illinois. No extra terrain there, right? It's also flat as a pancake. And you head out to Yellowstone. Had you been in the mountains before? Were those, was that your first time? I think I'd been to Colorado once, but I had certainly never been up there. Yeah, no, I got on a plane, flew to Bozeman right after school, did you know two or three days of training how to bump gas. And then I got put in a place called Fishing Bridge, which is in the middle of the park. It's no longer there because it's grizzly territory. And oh, wow. after we left, they closed that down. But we worked for... 10-hour days, and then you got three days off, and you were in the park. And, you know, there were all these other people working at the gas station, but then also everybody working at the seasonal help, working at, you know, the stores and the hotels and all that kind of stuff. And it was an absolute riot. I thought. You know, we got around the park by 
hitchhiking and we'd get backcountry passes and go off for, you know, three days. And when we first got there, it was, you know, lots of snow on the ground and going down mountains on scraps of cardboard and hiking around and sleeping out in the woods and all that kind of stuff. No, yeah, I learned it all on the fly. There were a lot more outdoorsy people there than me, but you become that spending a summer there. It was a spectacular way to spend a summer. When you first arrived, did you know anybody? Were you no. sort of on no. your own? No. It's funny, a number of those people have come back in my life. I was going to ask. There's a guy named Jerry Morgan who, when I used to live in Hillsborough, he lived there. He was there at the same time, and his brother, Bill Morgan, was also there you know, with me. So I've run into some of those people. I mean, we were all kind of a you know, melting pot, and it was great. And how did you even find out about it? This is so different than what I expect in Illinois and... My mom was a instructor at a junior college. She was a biology and physiology instructor, and one of her students had done it, and she just mentioned it to me, and it was kind of in the back of my mind. And I wrote to Alaskan fisheries, national parks, jobs, you know, kind of on the East Coast, Cape Cod type jobs, you know, just tried to figure out something to do. I got the Yellowstone job in, I don't know, February or March, my freshman year. You know, it's funny, I grew up, spending my summers when I turned nine years old in Colorado. That was the first time I'd ever seen a mountain. I remember my dad and mom were driving us out to Colorado, and I kept asking my dad, Dad, is that a mountain? He's like, no, that's a cloud. Dad, is that a mountain? No, that's a cloud. Dad, is that a mountain? He's like, that's not even anything. I don't even know what that is. And then all of a sudden, you know, you pull up and you sort of see the front range in the distance, and I said, is that a mountain? And he's like, yeah, son, that's a mountain. And I think back to my time there and the fact that I live now in California and have since 93. And for me, that experience of being in the Alpine wilderness and sort of, you know, getting closer to nature in a way that I had never growing up certainly influenced my desire to sort of relocate when I was able to out on the West Coast. I'm wondering if you feel the same way, if you feel like your time in in Yellowstone has influenced where you have sort of moved and raised your family and lived the bulk of your life as an adult. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I felt like I was going to move west at some point, but it took me a while. Uh, I did not leave Chicago until 95, and I did. My first move was to Colorado, so I moved about the same time you did. You know, another commonality that is now sort of surfacing in my mind. So David's mom was an educator, your mom was an educator, and my mom was an educator. So there's something, some commonality there. We'll have to sort of delve into it at some point. All right, so talk about this Maui trip, too. How did you find out about that job? Had you been to Hawaii before? So I had done two of these summers, and I lived in a fraternity at Illinois, which was, for me, a great experience. And uh, which really, fraternity really was it? had a great time, Sigma Chi. Sigma Chi. Really had a great time and lots of great friends. And so everybody knew I did this type of thing. And one of my fraternity brothers said, you know, I've got this cousin who manages a flower farm in Maui called Maui Sunburst. And uh, he needs seasonal help. And I said, oh, we got to do that. So him and his brother and I did the same thing. After our junior year, got on a plane, flew to Maui. We lived in his cousin's house in Kula, which is about halfway up Haleakala on the non-glamorous side of Hawaii. And we worked four 10-hour days Monday through Thursday. Mondays and Wednesdays, we picked, and Tuesdays and Thursdays, we weeded. It was Protea, which you know, things called Beautiful. Kings and Sunburst and a bunch of stuff. But we picked all these flowers, and we brought them into this long shed where there were a group of 10 or 20 people who were packing the flowers into boxes. We called them coffins. They were about a foot and a half wide, 12 inches tall, and, and eight feet long. And wow. then there was a guy on the phone 
And he would be on the phone starting first thing in the morning with New York saying, this is what I got, this is what I got, this is what I got to florists in New York. And he'd try to sell them boxes. And then he would go to Atlanta and then he would go to Chicago and then he would go to the West Coast. And we would bring the flowers down. They would get packed. And then at two o'clock, we'd load them up into a pickup truck, drive down the mountain, and we drove right on the tarmac put them wow. in the belly of an American plane, put them in the belly of a United plane, and then there would be fresh flowers at the florist the next morning. I mean, it is pretty remarkable to think about that supply chain, right? Were they refrigerated? They must have been refrigerated or... No, you know, they came straight out of the ground. They put a little dry ice in there to keep them a little bit cool. But of course, the plane is pretty cold. That's amazing. This past winter, we, we did a trip in rural Ecuador where I guess 90% of the roses in the United States come from. Yep. So we toured a, a rose farm, and it's just absolutely fascinating when you see it at scale and you see sort of how it grows, how it gets picked, how it gets processed, sorted, boxed. They do, in that instance, refrigerate them, and then they deliver them down to the airport, and off they go to you know, Atlanta or Miami or pretty remarkable. And, you know, this is probably the first sort of connection to your career I'll try to make, which is, you know, you see this business. This is a small business, unique, and it has a whole bunch of sort of logistics and sort of processes. You know, how often do you think about that experience in your day-to-day, your day-to-day job today? Does it ever sort of help you frame some of your sort of inquiries or questions when you're sort of looking at a new opportunity? Do you ever think about this Protea farm in Maui and your time there? Well, I mean, you know, eventually I became the CFO of Pro Flowers a long time mm-hmm. later, so <laughs> yeah, I definitely look back on it. I knew it was a really good business. I was always super commercial. You know, I always worked. I worked in high school. I was a bartender in college. You know, it was the only way to have money to do things, right? So that's what I did, and I was commercially minded. Yeah, fantastic. All right, so you're in college. You're sort of doing these amazing things. You're working your way through it. You're getting to see the Illini, you know, dominate in basketball. I don't remember if the football team was good at that point. But uh, at some point, you turned into a senior, and you have to start looking at what comes after college Talk us through sort of your mind at that time and the choices you were considering. You know, I was an econ major, math. Was that in the B school at Illinois? No, no. I was in the School of Liberal Arts, which was great. But the classes I liked the most were the econ classes. And so, you know, it was a great interviewing prospect, you know. And so I interviewed at the consulting firms and, you know, and mostly the auditing consulting firms and then at the banks. And I ended up taking a job at Harris Bank in Chicago as a commercial lending officer, and it was spectacular. You know, they trained you, paid for business school, and it was a good job to get coming out of college. And at the time, there were, you know, a handful of big sort of middle market banks, Harris Bank, Northern Trust, First Chicago, Continental, were all independent banks at the time. But I took that job really based on the training program and that I knew I was going to go to business school. So you were there for, was it a two-year program or? I was there two years. It was a one-year program. It was the first time that I had really had an accounting class. And then, I mean, the light went off for me, cash flow. You know, yeah. I loved accounting when I, I think because I took my first class, you know, after college, I could kind of see how this was useful. Yeah. And it was taught at the bank by two professors from Northwestern that they had, you know, resourced. And then they, in a very hardcore way, you know, taught us to tear apart financials income statement, balance sheet, cash flow. We spread the numbers by ourselves, right? You know, hand wrote them and uh, you learned about two sources of repayment and all those things. And it was just great training. And I was hooked, completely hooked on the finance side of things. I just absolutely loved it. 
it's interesting to hear that you took the accounting after Illinois because Illinois has always been known as a powerhouse in accounting. At the time, it was the number one undergraduate program. I don't know if it still is, but yeah, no, great accounting professors and many of my friends, you know, did that at the time. Big yeah. eight, now big four. Yeah. Track. It was a feeding ground for the big four, as I recall. It probably still is. So you you spend your year of the training program, then a year of lending. What kind of accounts were you on? What kind of businesses? I was, I were was you on the large to? corporate team, and there were you know this was late eighties, big buyouts. Oh yeah, we weren't the lead in any of those, but many of the you know kind of Chicago companies that went through a leveraged buyout, U.S. Gypsum, GATX. I worked on a number of those deals and, you know, we had one computer and spread yeah. the numbers and Lotus and, and all that. It was no just emails. It was great. So, And then you went from there to business school, right? No, I actually started at the time Chicago and Northwestern to get a business degree. It was 20 classes and um, it was the same professors on campus or- As the night school. Or- as the night school and you could switch. And so I started- after I'd been at the bank nine months or something, and I took 10 classes in five quarters, two classes a quarter while I was at Harris Bank. So, and then at the end of two years, I left and went full-time and I only had nine months to go. You know, at the time there was no clawback or anything. So they paid for 10 classes. I'm forever grateful for that. And I still have great friends from the Harris Bank. It's a tremendous place. But I went to business school and, you know, off I went. Yeah. And my wife did the same program. She actually ended up doing it through the night the whole time, but phenomenal experience, but also what a workload, right? You know, full day of work at the bank and then two classes and that is uh, not a lot of sleeping. Where in this whole mix comes your wife? Like, were you dating at that time? I knew her in college, but we started dating our senior year in college. Okay. So Michelle was in the picture at this point. Yeah. Dating. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So you're working at Harris Bank, you're taking classes at the University of Chicago at night, and somehow you're also spending enough time to sort of, you know, build a relationship with Michelle. You know, like all of us, right? It was burning the candle at both ends. It was so much yep. fun. We'd go to class from six to nine, you know, go have two beers, you know, go home, <laughs> yep. get off, go to work, do it again. Uh, so it was, good. Yeah, it was just hard charging great. And those, you know, the at the time, Lincoln Park in Chicago was just great fun, full of young people, and mm-hmm. we had an awesome time. But everybody was doing the same thing. Everybody was, you know, sort of work hard, play hard yep. mentality. All right, so then you get your MBA and continue us on the trail. You know, you interview almost right away, and yep. uh, I took a job in investment banking for Merrill Lynch. In Chicago, right? I uh, know. Okay. It was in New York, and I ended up, uh-huh. I'll tell you this, right. I got the job in December. I could left the bank in August, and by December, I had a you know, my next job, although I had to finish school. And so I went to New York, got the job, was going to move to New York. Michelle and I were engaged at the time, going to get married. So I got, I got the job and I called the Chicago office and I had interviewed there. You know, the, that was the first screen and, you know, I had interviewed there. I said, look, I, you know, I'm going to work for you guys in New York and I come in and work part-time because I had no money. And <laughs> right. So starting in January or February, while I was finishing school, I would go into Merrill Lynch and work two days a week. Were you corporate finance? Was yeah. that a... Yeah, I was yeah. In, in the general industrials group, you know, yeah. calling on... Quaker Oats and the Tribune Company and Waste Management, you know, all those great Chicago companies. And after doing that for four or five months, they said, you know, do you want to stay here? And Michelle and I talked about it. We were pretty excited about going to New York. And I said, "Ah, no, thanks. You know, I'm going to go to New York. You know, you wanted to go to New York. Yeah. And uh, I remember the head of the office pulled me in. He said, are you nuts? You know, like... (laughs) 
this is so much better lifestyle. You know, we're a small office. You know, you'll move up faster, all this kind of stuff. You're making the biggest mistake of your life. And I was like, really? And we said, okay, we'll stay. So I started at Merrill Lynch in whatever, July, went to New York for three months mm -hmm. training, but then came back in the Chicago office. And he was right. I loved it. I just had a great time. I worked for three great guys who, you know, all had clients. And, you know, so we had deals to work on and things to do. And there were only just a couple associates in the office. So everything flowed through us. And, you know, it was a great learning experience. So before we delve into that part of it, I'm going to take a step back and, you know, you finishing up your MBA, you're starting to look around, you've seen an amazing school. So all sorts of employers are soliciting the students there. Why investment banking? What were your choices and why did you decide investment banking? Oh, it's the only thing I wanted to do. I yeah. loved the Harris Bank job. I thought it was great. And, um, I just wanted to move up the decision tree. It felt to me like the strategic discussions and all that kind of stuff happened at the investment banking level as opposed to the commercial banking level. I don't know if that's really true, but, you know, it was the 80s. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it yeah. was, you know, yeah, greed is good. Barbarians uh, at the gate. All that. It was the only thing I wanted to do. And it was fun in every way. And it, out of that school, we were taking consulting jobs or, or that job. Yeah. yeah. And so talk about it as an associate in a small office, but with sort of, you know, partner level people that have clients and are busy, what were the things that you did then? And really sort of what of that has sort of helped you as you then went in-house and as you became a venture investor and as you sort of ended up becoming a venture capitalist? It was mostly large corporate. So we were working on financings, M&A activity, running comps and, you know, pro forma financials with a convert or, you know, with straight debt or, or, or raising equity or, or whatever it may be. And it was geographic. We had Indiana, Wisconsin, you know, basically most of Illinois and, you know, Minneapolis and all. So it was, it was sort of all those companies, you know, we were you know trying to get their deals. I mean, it was really competitive. We had our group of clients and the Goldman office at the time was run by Hank Paulson, who ultimately ended up running Goldman. And most of the Merrill guys, actually, that I worked for were very high up in Merrill Lynch later. The Morgan Stanley office was super strong. The CS First Boston office was strong. It was, you know, there were a bunch of people doing stuff. And how much of it was sort of the sales part of it? How much of it was sort of, you know, servicing a, a transaction that's already sort of been engaged with? On the engaged transactions, how much of it was, you know, sort of, I mean, the first four years, I was a bag carrier, right? Just doing whatever the senior guys wanted, whether yeah. we were pitching or Coffee. doing deals. We, we had a, we, we had a nice mix of deals. I don't I don't know what the percentage was, but we didn't have to do too many things where you know we had no shot. Yeah. And the best part of it was the guys I worked for were very smart and very good, and they knew what they wanted. They always liked thin books, and so that we did not have the. 200-page book that nobody ever looked at, which banking become a little bit more permeated. And so they were pretty substantive things, and they were fun problems to work on. But it was long hours, but it was fun. You know, it's funny. I'll tell the students that I teach at Illinois or sort of when I'm visiting at Stanford or just, you know, my kids' friends. It, you know, those early days, there's something to be said about the long hours, right? You don't realize how much you're learning as you're, you know, barely staying awake at two o'clock in the morning, knowing you have to be back in the office at six the next morning. But you learn a lot there and you get to witness these sort of, you know, people that have evolved in their career and have sort of developed an art to what they do. You, you sort of glean a lot of that. There's no substitute for that incredible hard work and that exposure to sort of really brilliant people. No, we prided ourselves on getting into the office before the New York guys get and, leave, and like leaving them a voicemail. Hey, I'm in the office. Yeah. When you get in, give me a call. You know, <laughs> we were in we our red earlier. light blinking on their phone in yeah. the morning. Yeah, yeah, those are great. Yeah. 
So you survived there and thrived. Not Se- survive. Seven years. I was there seven, seven years. years. Yeah, four years as an associate, and then you get an area. So they, you know, Carl Borg, you, you get Wisconsin. <laughs> Is that right? Is that what yeah, you were totally, got? Yeah, to- totally. Yeah. And if, you know, a few accounts here and there, and most of the big accounts are already, you know, so you drive around trying to do deals. And was this the genesis of the era Carl Borg on the road? Eric is a road warrior. We, we were on the road a lot. I flew in those seven years. When we went to New York every week, I flew two million miles on American wow. in, in those seven years. That's and they were great. all the glamour spots, you know, Cleveland, right. you know, St. Louis. A, a lot of times I would leave in the morning, come back, and I, you know, I'd be home by 6 or 6.30, and nobody even knew I spent the day in Cleveland. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It taught you you can do that, and it's actually I mean, doable. I, and it's yeah. Since then, I've almost always traveled half the time, but yeah. for the pandemic. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And so you're doing this. You're developing expertise. Undoubtedly, along the way, your clients take notice of you. The senior partners take notice of you. You know, you went from sort of an associate to sort of you know Wisconsin territory, and then keep going on that path for us. I kind of realized that what I was becoming was a high paid salesman, which is fine, but I felt like I was pitching too much product and, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I kind of wanted longer term relationships. It was the first time I thought about becoming an investor mm-hmm. and I had a few conversations with people and the response was, you should get some operating experience. So I left and I had carried the bags on Blockbuster at one point, which the number two guy at Blockbuster behind Wayne was a guy named Scott Beck who had gone off to start Boston Chicken and Einstein Noah Bagels. And so I left Merrill Lynch. I worked for a short period of time at Boston Chicken, but to become CFO of Einstein Noah Bagels. And I moved to Colorado. And Is that yeah, where took, it was based? Out yeah, I took Colorado. two small kids and we, you know, we moved to Evergreen, Colorado, and they were based in Golden, Colorado, and it was terrific. A year later, we took the company public and I was the CFO, and that was a great experience. Got it at a young age. Made a bunch of mistakes, but learned a lot. What would give us some insights into some of the mistakes? You know, we were adding 300 stores a year, you know, a lot of stores. So we had to raise tons of capital. We went public, subsequent stock offering, subsequent convert, and it was a great team. The people from that group have gone on to do amazing things. Scott Beck was a great recruiter and brought all sorts of super interesting people together, but we underestimated the cost of complexity. You know, we added lunch and we added different, and when you do that, it's hard to make money. You can get revenue, but it's hard to make money. And and our store level economics were not good and not what they needed to be. And we were trying to hit growth targets and everything else. And so, you know, eventually we had to retrench and a CEO ended up leaving and one of our operating guys became CEO both CEOs were great in their own way, but, you know, really had to retrench, you know, get back to basics, you know, store level profitability, build a P&L for each store, you know, monitor it on a daily, weekly basis. And those were all great things to yeah. learn. At the cost of growth, I assume. Cost of growth, cost of complexity. You know, and I say that all the time as an investor and as a board member, you know, focus on the core. And minimize the complexity that's unnecessary. We've had that conversation internally a couple times now. Yeah. You also mentioned the people that you've sort of run across, that you've worked around, you know, some brilliant people at Harris, some brilliant people at Merrill, at NOAA's. And, and I look at my own career and I look at how influential the people that I met and worked with early in my career are on my current career. 
And I think it's important to sort of keep in mind that from day one, you're building your network. From day one, you're building your reputation. And obviously, you've done a phenomenal job with that. Are there folks, you know, at Harris that sort of ended up influencing your time at Merrill? Are there folks at Merrill that ended up influencing your time at Noah's, et cetera? And, you know, my first day at Harris Bank, I sat next to a guy named Dave Purcell, same age. His father was Phil Purcell, who, you know, just a, a rocket. And I ended up partnering with Phil. Phil ended up being the chairman and CEO of Morgan Stanley in a you know meteoric career. And then he and I ended up being partners, you know, 20 years ago. So that relationship led to that. That was your foray into investing. That was yeah. when you sort of left banking and operating roles to become a full-time investor. And Phil was always an advisor and just an amazing guy. And he used to always say, you know, relationships are the key, but over time, it's your peers who push you up, not your bosses who pull you up. That was just great advice. At Einstein's, right, the guy I replaced who moved over to operations was a guy named Mike Bowden, who we've been friends for 25 years. He went on to found Service Magic, which became Home Advisor, sold that to IEC, and he is now CEO of one of our portfolio companies, House Call Pro. You know, great friends, great relationship, substantive relationship. Again, all those late nights, those bonds are, are very durable. Absolutely. All right. So Noah, you sort of went through taking it public, sort of enjoying, you know, some accolades in the public market, raising more capital, running in all of a sudden, you know, kind of getting to that next stage of the business where things needed some fine tuning and some hard decisions. What happened next? We did all that. And then it was 1999. Mm -hmm. I had the right experience, right? I've taken a company public. I had raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And I met Jerry Murdoch, who was one of the founding partners at Insight Partners in New York. Great guy. You know, started talking to him about their portfolio and, you know, technology and everything else. And I had always liked technology. And I ended up becoming CFO of one of their portfolio companies, Authorized.net. 19 employees based in Provo, Utah. Two great entrepreneurs, Dave Heaps and Jeff Knowles. And I, you know, went there in 99 you know, tiny little time. business, 600000 a month in revenue, very profitable. Did you relocate to Provo? Did you? Well, before I could relocate, we sold it. Ah. We sold it to go to. Now, I had commuted. Right. That's, that's what happened. We sold it for $90 million. We sold it too cheap. We sold it in 99. Then, of course, 2000 happened. It sold again in 2002 or 2003, and I actually looked at it for $90 million. Then it sold for $500 million and then a billion and a half. And you know, now it's part of Visa. Great business. We've had discussions at Lobby Capital about some of the historic investments we've all made, either at August for you guys or me individually as an angel or through my funds, selling too early versus selling. You know, And, and how do you make that decision? And there's certainly plenty of case studies that like the one you just shared where, you know, you sold early, the value kept growing. And so you sort of, you know, forfeited that upside. There's, and we've talked about Ebates and we've talked about, but there's also the other side of the coin where, you know, we know entrepreneurs that have said no to deals because they felt there was much more value to create and loan people that didn't happen. You know, how do you think about that as a venture guy? I mean, you know, all of us proverbial say that hindsight is 2020, but there was also a nuclear winter right. that we would have had to go through in 2001, 2002, 2003, where there's, you know, very little funding and that business was so profitable, probably would have been fine. But we sold to a great company, GoToNet in Seattle. I actually went to GoToNet for a very short period of time. So rather than move to Provo, I ended up moving to Seattle. So moved the small family again. And at that point, you've had three kids. If I'm not yeah, mistaken. we had a baby and kid number three in Evergreen, Colorado. Moved to Seattle, had kid number four. 
<laughs> so good. And he kept going. <laughs> kept going. Kept going. Early 2000s in Seattle is a different place than it is today. What, what were your impressions? Oh, it's a wonderful place. You know, we worked for this guy, Russ Horowitz, who was the uh, yep. founder of GoToNet and Mike Riccio and John Keister, all great people. And they had a Paul Allen investment public company. And so there, there was a lot going on. We thought Seattle was great. I actually ended up leaving because the inside guys called me back and said, hey, we got, mm. you know, we got another one. I was like, really? <laughs> and ended up becoming CFO of a little company in Salt Lake. So we ended up, after a year, we left had a baby and then <laughs> left and moved to Park City. And we lived in Park City for two years, working for a small company called Icono Communications, uh, again, an insight company, which is still going, but never was quite the success that we hoped. You know, it's interesting. You guys have moved around a lot. You're both Midwesterners, you and your wife. You have four kids, lovely kids. You're undeniably a family man that's done an amazing job with your family, keeping them and prioritizing them and giving them all the love and support that any family would want and cherish. And yet you've done that while moving around to different communities. It's exciting, but it's not easy. If you sort of flash the camera back, I mean, what did you expect to sort of live in these different places? Was that ever a goal or was it just that the opportunities emerged and you were flexible enough and adaptable enough to take advantage of those opportunities? Well, I mean, look, my wife is unbelievable, right? She, you know, she made all those moves. And every time we moved, we treated it like we were going to stay there forever. She was up for the adventure. So we did so, it. And, you know, I, I kind of just did two things, right? I work and family during those periods. And it, it was fun and I loved it. And, you know, yeah. we enjoyed the excitement of it. But, you, you know, you can't do it without a partner. And she's yeah. been a partner the whole time. And it was exciting. The last move we made was from San Francisco to San Diego. And our eldest was in seventh grade. And it was clear that that was a lot harder. And consequently, we've never moved again. <laughs> but, you know, moves when the kids are younger are exciting and fun. And I think our four kids, one of the reasons why they're very close is, you know, in the back of their mind. <laughs> it's like, they yeah, dad's going to come downstairs and say, hey, we're moving next week. <laughs> <laughs> but they built adaptability and, you know, self-confidence. Yeah, it's really neat to see. So the second Insight company, you're in Park City, yet again, sort of a challenging operating role that you're sort of stepping up to address and, and overcome. And then what? We were there through the Olympics. It was great. And many of the senior people at Merrill Lynch that I worked for had become very senior Merrill Lynch. And of course, we'd gone through the meltdown of 2001. And they called me back and said, hey, you now know something about technology and we know you. Why don't you come back in the technology group? And I ended up running the group with a great guy named Carl Will. You know, they were kind of looking for somebody that they knew and, you know, try to figure out what to do. And of course, we had to go through a big downsizing exercise and all that. So that led me back to Merrill Lynch, where I ended up running the technology group, moved to the Bay Area and did that for a handful of years. And after doing that, again, I kind of realized, you know, I was back to pitching products and shorter relationships. And I liked the longer term problem. But that also led to a lot of great relationships, right? I met Mark Vadon, who had founded Blue Nile and ultimately then founded Zoo Lily, which we invested in at August. I was on the board. And we're going to get to that story because yeah. that's yeah. I, really, I, really a, an amazing story. But I ended up leaving Merrill Lynch, take an operating job at Pro Flowers, Provide Commerce. Yeah. And they were a public company that needed a CFO. And I loved the, the CFO, still do. I call him the best boss I ever had, Bill Strauss. 
So I joined Provide. You know, we moved the family from San Francisco down to San Diego. And shortly after I get there, you know, we get this call from Liberty Media. We want to explore strategic alternatives. And note to self, guys, that whenever you bring Eric in, shortly thereafter, a corporate <laughs> opportunity it. will emerge. It, yeah, it's it our happened. secret weapon at Lobby it, Devil. It, it happened fast. It happened fast. Anyway, we, you know, public company, you got certain obligations and all that kind of stuff. And we ended up selling the business to Liberty Great team there. Dr. Malone's amazing. Greg Maffei had joined recently. He's an incredible person. And then the group was run by this guy, Michael Zeiser, who did a wonderful job integrating us and pulling us into that. But after we sold, I kind of thought I would stay at Provide. But then Phil Purcell called me and he had recently retired from Morgan Stanley and he had a vehicle called Continental Investors. And, you know, his career, he had started the Discover card, grew it while he was at Sears. And then they ended up buying Dean Witter. He ran that. Then they ended up merging with Morgan Stanley. And, you know, his vision after leaving Morgan Stanley was he liked growth. So he called me and we, we had a conversation and decided to partner together. And it was awesome. We invested our own money, mostly Phil's money, made about six investments over three years in two areas, fintech, mostly focused on the underbanked and then the internet, both consumer and enterprise. You know, that kind of got me into investing. It worked out great. We had some really good investments, great relationship. We invested in bodybuilding.com, hmm. ended up selling that to Liberty Media, same group, Michael Zeiser yeah. and that whole group. We invested in a cool fintech business called Veritech Solutions, which actually just recently sold. But again, uh, relationships, I ran into Dave Marquardt, who's the founder of August Capital, actually on vacation. And he asked me what I was doing. I told him I was investing. And he said, yeah, you know, you got to come talk to us. And at the time, August had a late stage fund that nobody was really managing. And Phil and I were doing later stage investments. And you know, one thing led to another and met David Hornick and Vivek and Howard and John Johnston, Andy Rappaport, all the partners at August over the course of whatever, four or five months and decided to join August in June of 2010. Yeah, fantastic. And so now we're going to get to Eric's very first investment. This I love this story, although it puts a little monkey on my back for my first investment. So Hidden level, you got a lot to prove here. So Eric, tell us about your first investment at August Capital. You know, I had had this long relationship with Mark Vadon, who is an extraordinary entrepreneur and has got the track record to prove it. And Mark, just for the audience, Mark was the founder of Blue Nile, based up in Seattle. Lily, big investor in Chewy, just, you know, success upon success. And he's an extraordinary talent. Anyway, I was personally an early investor in Zulily, and when I took the job at August, I don't know, you know, whatever, I took it May 10th or something like that, and my first day was going to be June 1st, and I called and said Zulily was going to raise some money. So I called and I said, look, you know, can I bring this company in? And Dave Marquardt at the time said, sure. So my first day was Monday, June 1st, and I brought in Zulily that day. We ended up making the investment, which was great. It was a really good way to get integrated into August, but we ended up making the small investment seven or eight million dollars and that ended up turning into 280 million dollars so it was good first day <laughs> good first day eric yeah. and he's never slowed down since yeah 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 <laughs> the irr it, deteriorated after that but but it was pretty good no, pretty high bar to start with really 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 fun really fun and so let's talk about venture capital You've now been investing for, what, 16, 17 years. And in August, it was about 10 years. Lobby, it's been obviously a year plus, and Phil before that. So Zulily was a unique one in the sense that you were already invested in it. You had already sort of put a personal stake in it. You had known Mark. You had seen Mark's success. You were on the board of Blue Nile, if I'm not mistaken. I was, and Zulily, yeah. 
And Zulily. And so, yeah. so you had a, a really good relationship there and you sort of, there was some pattern recognition, but, you know, maybe talk about the investment decision process. Cause that was your first investment at August. It, there was a lot of pressure on you there. And, you know, how did you approach that? How did you think about that investment? Sort of what were some of the characteristics of that investment that sort of got you over the hump? What were some of the things that maybe you sort of had in the back of your mind as the risk factors that, you know, that sort of may have caused some pause or at least some awareness that it's not a slam dunk? Yeah, there were, actually, it was a big change because mostly Phil and I did later stage investing because right. we didn't have the diversity to invest in, you know, a portfolio of 20 or 25 investments that you can do in early stage where a number of them don't work out, but the ones that you do hit are big. So it was much earlier stage, but of course I knew Mark and Daryl super well. Daryl was the CEO, Mark was executive chairman. And so for me, it was, you know, investment we wanted to make. It was, you know, not cheap. It was a small business growing quickly. Dan Levitan was on the board at Mavron. Jason Stouffer was involved. Also great guys. Awesome. Awesome guys. But, you know, just kind of went through the process. We all talked about it in the same way that we do, you know, at Lobby. Pros and cons. These are strength, big market, experienced team. These are the weaknesses. You know, it's complexity of the business. No brand, a team that had done something adjacent, but not exactly the same. Very strong cash flow dynamics in that business and that we got orders from customers and got their money and then had to pay suppliers later. But, you know, just went through kind of a three-week process of evaluating the deal. And it's kind of amazing. The partnership nodded their head and said, let's do it. And we did. And Mark and Daryl made it never hard. It just was straight up from there. You know, there were no bumps in the road. It was straight up. But it was about the team, it was about the size of the market, and it was about the business model, which is, you know, the near-term business model and then the long-term business model, the competitive landscape. And, you know, the insertion of technology providing you an advantage or an opportunity to disrupt an industry or beat incumbent, which we say all the time. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Your next investment was not one that you had prior relationship with. Next investment was Snagajob, which came from Benedict Rocchio and Jeff Deal. Benedict Rocchio was the Series A investor from Baird Capital, and I met him when I was with Phil. So again, you know, relationship based in Richmond, Virginia, and the idea was to create a marketplace for hourly workers. So, you know, as I want to do, hopped on a plane, went to Richmond. It was a later stage investment. Uh, we put $25 million in. We ended up getting our money out, and we still own a piece of the business today. But that one was a bit of a journey, harder to acquire prospective employees than I think that we thought, and then also manage the process of putting the employers on the platform. But still going, great entrepreneur, a guy named Sean Boyer. He's moved on and is doing something different. But we ended up selling the majority of our position in a recap. So we're no longer on the board, but we still own some of that business and made some money, but not a barn burner. So I'm going to spin the class forward up to sort of lobby capital. And I think the listeners are probably curious, as entrepreneurs seem to always be, about how do we make decisions? You know, how do we decide this is the right deal? Because there is a randomness to our deal flow. There's a randomness to sort of, you know, trends in the market, you know, what tides are rising, what tides are not. But let's talk a little bit. There's there's a couple of sort of superpowers that I think you have. And now having gone through your career path and hearing sort of your experience, it's even more clear to me why you have this superpower. And that is 
an uncanny sort of perception or ability to look at a company's operating plan or sort of financial statements and identify sort of unique characteristics, whether they're positive characteristics or negative. You sort of have a phenomenal way of kind of looking and piercing through and sorting and sifting and identifying. And yet in the early stage, it's a difficult thing to do, right? There's not oftentimes a, a ton of history there to kind of look at. But you know, talk to us about first, you know, when you look at a deal in early stage, because lobby capital is focused on early stage, how do you sort of get your mind around a mental model of where they can go financially? I think first, right, the three of us and the venture partners as well share the view that the most important thing is the team, right? The entrepreneur is first and foremost and the team around it. Team, 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 Tam, team. Right. So, right. Yeah, no, that's right. We all start there. And then the next thing is, you know, how big can it be? And there's usually some debate there because oftentimes, you know, you think you're in a big market or a big pond and it ends up being more shallow than you thought, more competitive Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And then there are some things that don't initially appear big that become big, right? You know, Uber for black cars, then Uber for everyone, right? We love that, right? And so we have that conversation. But then you're right, my next process. And I think the role I play in the partnership is to try to think about what the business model could be and what the margin structure could be. And, you know, it starts with unit level economics, cost to acquire, lifetime value, what it is now and what could be competitive position, what it is now and what it could be leads to pricing pressure or margin erosion, (laughs) depending on the mode around it. And, you know, I kind of naturally go to that, end up asking the most questions around the unit level economics and the economics in the business. And, you know, been wrong in some businesses and been right in others. And I think always go back to the simpler the business is, the easier it's going to be to make money and expand margins. And so I think what you're referencing is I'm that voice (laughs) in the partnership decision. Oh, it's so valuable because, you know, ultimately every business on the planet, if it has its life as an independent business, gets valued based upon how much money it makes, right? At the end of the day, that is sort of the goal of a business is to sort of create an engine that creates money, creates income. And so often in the early stages, that's not a conversation that entrepreneurs sort of are eager to have. Now, admittedly, they have a lot to sort of build before they can get to the point where the company is actually making money. But having an eye towards why eventually they're going to have an unfair advantage in making money is really a, a critical component of the story, I think. That's right. And it you know it usually doesn't go exactly the way. the way we all think. But if you can't frame it out in your mind initially, it could change, but it would be hard to make that investment. Like, I don't know how these economics are going to work, but we're going to make this investment. <laughs> yep. The other thing that sort of stems from that is the capital requirements of a business. You know, and again, not always clear from day one exactly what kind of capital requirements will be needed. We've certainly seen some software businesses that initially look like they could be very lean from a capital standpoint and then sort of spin the clock forward five, 10 years. They've raised a billion dollars and they're sort of spending a lot of money on building out their sales force and sort of their marketing machinery. But again, a healthy exercise to sort of think forward on the capital requirements of a business in order to achieve the vision of the entrepreneur. You've always struck me as sort of having a good perspective on that and at least forcing that thought exercise. Yeah. I mean, you learn that the hard way, right? Is Mm -hmm. if you are in a really capital intensive environment or a capital intensive business, there'll be times where that capital is easier to form and times where it's harder. And given the length of these businesses, chances are you're going to have a cycle or two. So you just got to think about the capital uses and know that adds 
you know, some risk to it. It can also be a differentiator. Sometimes yeah. people that are great money raisers in capital intensive businesses, you know, they use that to their advantage and squeeze out the competition. Yeah, for sure. So talk through some of the most exciting or most unpredictable, most fun, most frustrating, most personally sort of expanding experiences you've had as an investor. You know, talk through a couple of things that sort of you think have really imprinted upon you and made you sort of who you are today. You know, for me, it's the length of the problem. You know, the authentic relationship that you have with the entrepreneur or the management team. Sometimes the entrepreneur, you know, moves on. But, you know, the length of that problem, you know, working your way through it, I tend to do Friday calls with every one of my investments. And there are some that I don't do that with, but i super communicative. And so that when I don't have those scheduled calls, it's usually because I talk to the entrepreneur a couple times a week. And so it's the length of the problem, being involved in the process of hiring the team, thinking about the business. And, and the entrepreneur is doing all the heavy lifting. We're just, you know, sounding board and, and cheerleader and pattern recognition. But those long relationships where you start on a business, well, you know, whenever you start, whether it's a late stage investment or a, an early stage investment, there's nothing more rewarding than, you know, making an investment with a handful of people or 50 people and then ultimately being a thousand people in a, you know, super valuable business. And it's, it's incredible how frequently it happens. You know, I love the whole ecosystem, the, the entrepreneur ecosystem, the partnership that we have and, and our venture partners and our LPs, and then frankly, the other investors. It's just a, you know, incredible ecosystem of super competition on one hand, but super cooperation on the other. And then, you know, to be in a market, and I remember Phil always thought about it this way, but just to be in a market that's expanding, right? All boats rise in a right rising tide. tide. And you think of the percentage of GDP that's gone to tech over the last, you know, 30 or 40 years, it's just been straight up and that's good for all of us. doesn't look like it's slowing down either. Yeah. It's early. It's early. You know, I mean, I love the baseball analogy. I love sort of getting the question, where are we in the tech revolution? And I feel like we've been stuck at sort of the bottom of the second inning for about 10 years. So got a long way to go. So Eric, you know, we talked about this internally quite a bit and we have a little discussion about it in our sort of introductory video that we posted on our website. But if you don't mind, Maybe take a moment and just share how Lobby Capital came together. You know, we had finished investing August 7 and had some good success. So we had some flexibility as to what we were going to do next. And David and I formed a very strong partnership, shared vision, non-overlapping experiences and network. And the shared vision was Series A investing. It's about the people first big market, have an authentic relationship with each other, uh, with our LPs and with our entrepreneurs. And David and I were clearly going to go forward and we, you know, we wanted to expand our group. And, you know, one of the first conversations that we had is who shares that vision, who shares that authenticity and has a non-overlapping network and non-overlapping skill set. And David had had a 25 year relationship with you, Buddy and I had had a long relationship as well, although not as long. And it was an obvious choice to reach out to you and, you know, try to convince you to leave your lucrative law job. <laughs> we did that first. And then, the, you know, the three of us coming together and we spent a year really making sure we had that shared vision. It was as simple as what I just said. You know, those three things is kind of what we wanted to do. And we also thought experience matters, right? Being a Series A investor, you know, long tenure and experience is oftentimes what an entrepreneur is looking for. But then we thought about the brand. 
August is a great brand. David had created the Lobby Conference, which had really spawned into the Lobby ecosystem. We had had 2,000 people participate in Lobby Conferences and 3,000 different, you know, user-generated sessions. And from an entrepreneur perspective, you know, the Lobby name and the Lobby brand was lightning in a bottle. And so while we were trying to bring a lot of the great things from August, you know, we wanted to leverage that Lobby brand turned out to be a great decision. That allowed us to really delve deeper into the lobby ecosystem. I don't want to say leverage it, but make the fund uh, more part of it than it was before. And it turned out to be a, a great decision. I think the three of us have bonded really well together. Our venture partners have been an important part of uh, the equation. And then, of course, the community is big investors and big resource for us, new deals, and then also in evaluating deals. You know, it's interesting. I, on occasion, I'll be asked by an entrepreneur with whom we're speaking about an investment, you know, what's the future for lobby capital? And my response has been, in many regards, we look at lobby capital as sort of a you know back to basics venture fund. We are not intending to grow this into a large institution. We will not have a hierarchy of different resources and people that the partners leverage for diligence or for portfolio support. We are making the investments. We are taking an active role with our investments. We hope to develop that same team camaraderie and collaboration with our portfolio companies. And uh, while we will get bigger because we will hopefully bring on additional partners to sort of broaden our thinking and diversify our perspectives, we're back to basics. And it's worked for all three of us. And we'll see if it works for Lobby Capital. I'm pretty optimistic that it will. May as well. And like you said, it's the second inning. It's just the beginning here. Could you give us a success story in the past that sort of you love you know, telling? The, Kevin Johnson, who's one of our venture partners, just one of those great stories where, you know, August made the investment a long, long time ago. Kevin joined before I joined. David was on the board and saw something in the business that other people didn't see, right? And it was looking at the business from a consumer side, everyone was doing that, but looking at it from a merchant side and acquiring customers and the business was called Ebates. And it was a you know, profitable, growing business when we made our second investment, which I led our second investment. And I can't remember what the valuation was. I think we put 25 million in it, 150 or something like that. But we ultimately ended up selling the business for a billion dollars to Rakuten. And my guess is since we sold it, the business probably 10 times as big and, you know, worth 10 times as much. But, you know, that was a business that was plotting is the wrong word, but sort of bumping along for 12, 13 years, right person comes in, has a unique insight at a unique time in the marketplace and, you know, accelerates the business. And, you know, that was a lot of fun. But, you know, each investment, there are always, you know, high points that you share with the entrepreneur and, and all that. And then there are low points that you share with the entrepreneur and you try to be founder authentic. Sometimes we're right, sometimes we're wrong, but we try to give a candid view. Yeah, I love that process. Yeah, yeah. It's a true team sport. And not every team player is always on and not every team player is always playing their best game. But as a team, you sort of communicate clearly. You sort of get through that. All right. Well, this was a fantastic conversation as always. I could spend hours talking to Eric. I love the guy. I love hearing his background, his stories, his perspective. So Eric, thanks a ton for spending time on the podcast. I uh, feel privileged to be your partner. And I know that we're doing some great stuff at Lobby Capital and are looking forward to more. Thanks, buddy. Me as well. Yep. A lot of great things to come. This has been The Fabric a podcast by Lobby Capital. Make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming episodes and content. 
I'm Buddy Arnheim, and I look forward to our next conversation.